We are in John chapter 7. We're continuing to make our way through the Gospel of John. So if you've got a Bible with you, I encourage you to open it to John chapter 7. And we are spending our time in the first 13 verses of John chapter 7 this morning. I don't have a a long introduction for you. We're going to jump right into this passage. So let me just read it for you. It says this, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is Always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Well, at at first glance, this passage doesn't appear to have a single unifying theme. It appears in the context of growing opposition to Jesus. But even if we can't nail down sort of one main theme, there's still much we can learn from what we read in these verses. And I want to walk you through the passage by making five observations. The first one is that the setting is more important than you think. I think we tend to read over verses like verses 1 and 2 without giving them much thought. It says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Those verses actually tell us quite a bit about what was happening. They provide information in at least four areas. The first one is chronological. The first words of verse 1 are, After this. And that little phrase is used to designate an indefinite period of time. It would be the modern day equivalent would be something like sometime later this took place. And I only point this out because it reminds us that there are some significant gaps in the chronology of John's gospel. The last recorded event was Passover. That was the setting for all of chapter 6. Chapter 6 verse 4 says, now the Passover, the feast of Jews was at hand. The setting for this chapter is the Feast of Booths. Now, Passover took place in April. The Feast of Booths took place in October. So there's about a six or seven month gap between what we read in chapter six and what we read in chapter seven. And that actually takes us to the second important piece of background information, which is geographical. It says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. Now, why is that important? Well, just think about what took place in chapter 6. Chapter 6 was highlighted by Jesus' miraculous feeding of the 5,000, and then the bread of life discourse that followed it. 
The crowd that Jesus fed that day was actually much larger than 5,000. It was 5,000 men who were present. So you add the women and children. And conservatively, we could say that crowd was probably 10 to 15,000 people strong. So just think about this. Jesus leaves the crowds in the metropolitan area to go and minister to much smaller groups of people in sort of backwater towns. Now, John doesn't tell us exactly what Jesus did in these six or seven months, other than the fact that he went about in Galilee. But we know from reading the other Gospels what Jesus did in that intervening time period. When we read those other Gospels, we discover that during this period, Jesus ministered to some of the Gentile regions. He also went to some of the towns that were kind of on the periphery. But Jesus' primary ministry during those six or seven months consisted of teaching his disciples. And I think there's a word for us about discipleship in that. Now, I'll have more to say about it in a little bit, but the goal was not always to attract the largest crowd possible. The goal is not always to do ministry in the largest context you can think of or the biggest place you can imagine. And I would just say this on a personal level, that some of the individuals who've had the greatest impact on my life taught in a Bible college in Karenport, Saskatchewan, population 994, according to the last census. So we might think going about in Galilee was kind of a waste of time. But it represented real ministry that would change the course of world history. So there's a chronological bit of background. There's some geographical background. The third piece of background information we are given is situational. It says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, in case I haven't pointed this out before, when it says the Jews, it's actually a reference to the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders. Those in Galilee and in other regions were also Jewish. They were Israelites. Throughout the Gospel of John, the reference to the Jews is almost always a reference to the Jewish religious leaders. And there had been this growing tension between Jesus and the religious leaders. We've kind of seen it as we've made our way through this book. It started back in chapter 2 when Jesus came into the temple area. He drove out the money changers and the merchants. And the religious authorities wanted to know by what authority he was doing these things. What gives you the right to do this, Jesus? That tension escalated in chapter 5 after he healed the lame man on the Sabbath day and the religious leaders were upset that he was violating their understanding of the Sabbath. There was tension that was growing. It escalated again after the feeding of the 5,000 in Jesus' bread of life discourse. And now by the time we get to this point, they simply want him dead. They were seeking to kill him. Fourth piece of background information is theological. Verse 2 begins by telling us, Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So you should know, just as you read through this gospel, that all of chapters 7 through chapter 10 takes place during this festival, this feast of booths. Feast of Booths was also known as Tabernacles. You can read about it in Leviticus 23 and Numbers 29. 
the Feast of Booths was actually the most joyous celebration on Israel's calendar. People from all over Israel would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. It lasted for eight days. And the reason for the celebration was for the Israelites to remember that before they entered into the Promised Land, before they had a home that they could call their own, they dwelt in tents or booths as they made their way across the wilderness. And during those years, God dwelt among his people in a symbolic way in the tent of meeting and provided for their needs in miraculous ways. This is the background to John chapter 7. Now, I've mentioned it before, but there is a replacement theme that is found throughout the Gospel of John. In chapter 2, we learn that Jesus replaces the temple. All that old way of worshiping, that's gone. Now we worship directly through Jesus. We've also seen that Jesus is the Passover lamb. He replaces that sacrifice. Jesus referred to himself as the bread of life. He is the replacement for the manna that came down from heaven. Jesus replaces that. One of the ways that God provided for the Israelites during this period, during the period of their their wilderness wanderings, when they had nothing to drink, God provided water by them striking, by Moses striking a rock and water pouring out from it. And so later in this chapter, when Jesus stands up and says, whoever believes in me, streams of living water will flow from his heart. Jesus is saying he's the replacement for that. God provided direction for the people during that period by appearing as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And right in the middle of this feast, in chapter 8, Jesus is going to stand up and say, I am the light of the world. See, everything pointed to Jesus. All of the the feasts and the festivals celebrated in the Old Testament find their fulfillment in Jesus. He fulfilled all of them. That's the theological background to what we read here. But there's a second thing we learn from this passage, and that is that success looks different than you think. Listen again to verses 3 and 4. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. So Jesus' brothers have a suggestion for him, a bit of career advice. If he really wants to make a name for himself, then he ought to leave these backwater towns. He ought to go and make a splash on the big stage. Now, you can understand their thinking, right? I mean, if you want to make it as an actor or an actress, you need to go to Hollywood. If you want to make it as a musician or a country music star, you've got to go to Nashville. If you want to make it, Jesus, as a big-time religious leader, you've got to go to Jerusalem. You've got to go to the feast. Anyone who is, everyone who is anyone will be there. So the brothers say to him, go, show yourself to the world. And their words are actually just a subtler form of Satan's temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Look, just turn these stones into bread. Throw yourself from this cliff. All these kingdoms can be yours. 
Their words are similar to Peter's. When Jesus starts talking about his impending death, Peter pulls him aside, tries to rebuke him. Look, Jesus, your popularity is at its peak. Why all this talk about death and suffering? And remember, chapter 6 ended with many of Jesus' disciples turning back, turning away from him. So maybe going to the feast in Jerusalem would be a way to gain some of them back. And we need to remember that Jesus wasn't impressed with numerical success. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to give his life as a ransom. He was committed to his mission regardless of who was jumping on or who was jumping off the bandwagon. And I think this is important for us to remember as well, especially in a day when so much is made of numerical success. That's what matters. I mean, how many followers do you have? I think everyone deals with this temptation in different ways. If you're a musician, you have to decide if your goal is to make good music or just music that sells. I'm not saying you can't do both. But a lot of successful musicians would tell you that their careers became more about giving people what they want instead of making music for the sheer love of doing it. Many actors, actresses, authors could say the same thing. Commercial success became the driving force. And this is something I've had to work through in my own life in regards to ministry. So my first vocational ministry assignment or job was as the college and career of the young adults pastor at Willingdon Church. Some of you, a couple of you were even in, in that group. It's a long time ago now. The high point of the week there was the Wednesday night chapel that we had. My first conversation with the senior pastor at the time, Pastor Carlin, who I loved deeply, went something like this. Look, Lee, I told the last guy who led this, that if he got the group to 150 people, I'd buy him a steak dinner. You have to get it to 200. And we did. On on about week four, we hit that number, the magic number 200. He had to buy me a steak dinner. It felt like the height of success to me. And we never hit that number again, by the way. But in those days, I took Thursdays as my day off, the follow-up to Wednesday night. And I was either in a state of euphoria or I was in the depths of despair. I mean, I was either like, look, so many people showed up. My illustrations seemed to connect with everyone. My jokes all landed. Or I was like, where was everyone? My message seemed to fall flat. I'm just not cut out for this, maybe. Now, had I continued down that path, I would have either burnt out or gotten a really big head, depending on how things went. And in time, what I came to realize is that success is far more about faithfulness than largeness. So how do we define success in ministry? I think we can see it in the example of Jesus. Now, maybe an illustration will help. If you light a stick of dynamite and launch it 500 feet into the air and it explodes, was it successful? Well, in one sense, yes, it was. The dynamite did exactly what it was designed to do and it got a lot of people's attention. People for five miles around looked up into the sky to see what happened. But three minutes after it detonates, There's hardly any evidence the explosion ever even occurred. 
other than a whiff of gunpowder and a few confused bystanders still staring into the sky. Take that same piece of dynamite, however, burrow it into the side of a rock face and light it, and you have a different kind of success. The bang won't be nearly as loud, but you will now have an opening where previously you had only a mountain. And the kingdom of God is effective like that piece of dynamite. It doesn't just grow as a spectacle that makes a big splash. It brings transformation wherever it spreads. And can I just say, that's what we're trying to do at Crossroads. We're not the biggest church around. We don't have any rock stars as pastors. We're not trying to be deliberately small either. What we're trying to be is faithful. And to the degree that we do that is the degree to which we are successful. Are we on mission or not? Chuck Colson was a political advisor to President Richard Nixon back in the 1970s. He actually went to prison for his involvement in the Watergate scandal. And in the midst of all that, he became a Christian. And when he got out of prison, he started a ministry called Prison Fellowship International, which grew into the world's largest outreach to prisoners, ex-prisoners, and their families. There are now chapters in 120 different countries. But in the midst of their rapid growth, Chuck Colson wrote these words in one of the organization's monthly newsletters. He said, by the time you read this, we will have dedicated our new national offices near Washington, D.C., As a result of this and other recent expansions, many people have written me to the effect that God is obviously blessing Prison Fellowship's ministry. As much as I am sincerely certain that God is indeed blessing us, I believe even more certainly that it's a dangerous and misguided policy to measure God's blessing by standards of visible, tangible, material success. And then he said this, The inference is that when things are prospering, God is blessing us. And conversely, that when things are going poorly or unpublicized, God's blessing is not on the work or it's unimportant. We must continually use the measure of our obedience to the guideline of his word as the real and only standard of our success, not some more supposedly tangible or glamorous scale. See, this is what I mean by saying that success looks different than we think. There were lots of points along the way in Jesus' ministry where it did not look like it was a success. Third thing we see in this passage is that skepticism often hits close to home. And we see this in verse 5. And there it just says, for not even his brothers believed in him. Pretty startling verse, actually. This was the reality that Jesus dealt with throughout his life. The Gospel of John begins on that note with this broad statement or in this broad way. When it says, he was in the world, that's Jesus, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So Jesus experienced this sort of large-scale rejection from the world. But he also had first experience with it in his hometown and even his own family. The other gospel writers give us more insight into this. Matthew says this, is, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? 
And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. See, Jesus experienced that sort of rejection from his hometown, those he grew up with, from his family. Mark uses even stronger language when he says, And when his family heard of it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He's out of his mind. So you can imagine the conversations around the dinner table at Jesus' house, right? Now, some of you can relate to this. I mean, you might be the only Christian in your family. Your parents, your siblings, your aunts and uncles, maybe even your spouse thinks you're crazy for believing what you do. Even if you grew up in a Christian home, you might have family members who walked away from the faith and see your beliefs as hopelessly naive. And if it's not your family, maybe it's your coworkers or your friends or others in your immediate circle who view your beliefs with contempt or scorn. Skepticism often hits close to home. Jesus understands that because he experienced it. For not even his brothers believed in him. Now, if we just left it there, it'd be a a, a sad statement. But it might be just worth remembering that while some of Jesus' family members were skeptical during his life, they didn't all remain that way. So I'm fast-forwarding a little bit. But in one of the verses I read you from Matthew, we were introduced to his brothers as James and Joseph and Simon and Judas or Jude... Listen to what the Apostle Paul says when he writes to the church in Galatia. He says, But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. The book of Jude, near the end of the New Testament, was most likely written by one of Jesus' brothers. That book begins like this. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So most scholars think that Jude simply went by Jude instead of Judas just to make sure there was no association between him and the other Judas. But I point this out just to say that if you've experienced this reality, skepticism, hitting close to home, you should know that it puts you in good company. Jesus experienced this. And you should know that it doesn't always have to have the last word. Ilona and I can both testify that we've had family members who seemingly wanted nothing to do with the Christian faith, who later surrendered their lives to Jesus. There's a fourth thing we discover in this passage. Namely, we discover surprising truths about God's kingdom. And I would say we see this in two ways here. One has to do with Jesus' timing, and the other has to do with Jesus' method. So let's look at his timing first. We see this in verses 6 to 8. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. So Jesus' reason for not going up to the feast, he says, is because his time has not yet fully come. 
come. This is not the first time we've encountered something like this in the Gospel of John. You might remember back in chapter 2 when Jesus was at that wedding feast in Cana. His mother told him or relayed the information that, you know, the, the wine had run out. And, and then we read, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. This actually becomes something of a theme in John's gospel. So later in chapter 13, we're going to read, Now before the feast of the Passover, that's the next Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, and having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Or in chapter 17, when Jesus offers that great prayer, says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that he may glorify you. So Jesus' time or his hour is a reference to his death, that he will die on behalf of the people. Everything in the Gospel of John is moving towards that event. Now, I think we understand that, but part of what's surprising here is that Jesus says, look, I'm not going up to the feast because my time has not yet come. And then he goes up to the feast Right? That's what verse 9 says. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. And then verse 10, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but private. So wait, what exactly is going on here? I mean, was Jesus being dishonest or deceptive? He says, I'm not going to the feast. My time hasn't come. And then two days later, he goes to the feast. Did he not know he was going to go and he changed his mind? Why does he say, I'm not going up to the feast? Well, I think this is where you see the connection between Jesus' timing and his method. Jesus, it says, went up to the feast, not publicly, but in private. But what even does that mean? I mean, was he in hiding when he got there? Well, if we look ahead to verse 14, and we'll get to this next week, it says, about the middle of the feast... Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. So he's not going privately in the sense of like he's hiding from everyone. And I think that verse actually gives us a bit of a clue as to Jesus' methodology. His brother's appeal was, look, you should go up to the feast and do the works you're doing. They're basically saying, look, Jesus, go up there with lots of fanfare, bring your entourage, work some miracles, and people will have no choice but to believe in you. But that wasn't Jesus' method. I mean, he did miracles. We've seen that. He fed people. He healed people. But his method was not to, you know, let's get the biggest crowd together And I'll do something spectacular. He wasn't interested in merely attracting a crowd. And this is actually the way of God's kingdom. On one occasion, Jesus told two really brief parables about the nature of God's kingdom. In Matthew 13, it says, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make its nests or their nests in its branches. 
He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now, those are short parables, but they pack an amazing punch. Those parables teach us that God's kingdom grows even when we can't see it growing or it grows in ways we can't necessarily detect from the outside. See, our methodology is to take that stick of dynamite and toss it in the air so everyone can see it. Jesus' methodology is to take it and bury it in the rock face. Again, this doesn't mean stay small, but it means that the the method or the recipe for true growth is different. The reality in both of those parables is that the growth actually produces something. The woman mixes her leaven into three measures of flour, and from what I understand, that would yield enough bread for 150 people. The mustard seed produces a plant that brings a harvest that also provides shelter to the birds. It grows so large in the end. Kingdom growth is like that. Jesus' ministry is like that. It has a surprising method and outcome. Speaking about his own life, Jesus gave a vivid illustration of what this kind of growth looks like. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. See, that's what Jesus' ministry was about. So Jesus shows up at the feast, not with signs and wonders, but teaching. Hardly a recipe for kingdom advancement. Or is it? See, I think it's good to bear this in mind. I mean, sometimes we kind of wish God would write something in the sky or he'd send a bolt of lightning. Then people would believe. Sometimes we think the only way to affect change is through activism. Jesus goes up to the feast privately. He gets up in the middle of the feast and he starts teaching the people. final thing we see in this passage is that speculation about Jesus is common. Now, those three dots at the end of that point should tell you, I'm actually going to give you five and a half points this morning, or at least give this to you in two halves. The first half is that speculation about Jesus is common. Verse 12 says this, And there was much muttering about him among the people. Well, some said he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. This was the case everywhere Jesus went. People had lots of different ideas about Jesus. You could not have an encounter with him or hear his teaching and think, meh, it's okay, I guess. We're going to see in next week's passage that when Jesus finished teaching, everyone was amazed. They wanted to know, where did he get this wisdom from since he didn't have formal training? There was lots of speculation about Jesus. And the truth is that kind of speculation about Jesus is just as common today. So here's just a sampling of some diverse opinions about Jesus from history. Napoleon Bonaparte, the French emperor in the early 1800s said this. I know men and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. 
Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. Albert Einstein, one of the most influential scientists of the 20th century, had this to say about Jesus. He said, as a child, I received instruction both in the Bible and in the Talmud. I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. Elton John, one of the most successful musicians of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, sold over 300 million albums, gave this opinion. I think Jesus was a compassionate, super-intelligent gay man who understood human problems. On the cross, he forgave people who crucified him. Jesus wanted us to be loving and forgiving. Look, opinion about Jesus has always been divided. You know this. If you were to gather together, you know, 10 of your friends or 10 just random people on the street and ask them the question, who do you think Jesus is? You know you would get like 15 different answers. But here's where I want to complete that thought. Speculation about Jesus is common. Verse 13 says this, Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Now, we're going to see more of this later in the Gospel of John. But for now, I think it's just worth mentioning that while speculation about Jesus is common, it should never be our end point. See, lots of people were genuinely impacted by Jesus' teaching and ministry. But at least for some of them, the fear of man prevailed. Right? We're not going to talk about him openly because we don't know what the authorities are going to say to us. And I would just say that just theorizing about Jesus is not enough. There's an example of what I mean by this from another incident in Jesus' ministry. Matthew tells us this. He says, Now when Jesus' disciples came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. See, there was lots of speculation about Jesus in the first century. Some said, well, maybe he's John the Baptist. Come back to life. Or maybe he's Elijah or Jeremiah. Maybe he's one of the other prophets. But then Jesus asks the critical question, but who do you say that I am? And that's actually the question for us, for every one of us. Who do you say Jesus is? Not based on your speculation, but upon who he has revealed himself to be in his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that though we live in a world that is sometimes hostile to your message, to your truth... Lord, we can know you, and we can know you through your word. And we pray that, in fact, we would experience that reality in our lives, uh, not just in a theoretical way, but in the way that we relate to you. And so, God, I pray even this week we would experience that reality, that we would know you for who you are. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.